Here we go, and it's going to be a good one. It's time for Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. 95.9-1069. I'm Mike Balsamo and Ira. Kind of cool to see real golf back over the weekend. And I think that they did themselves uh, no shortage of favors by having such a star-studded field down there to the wire. What, what a golf match. Yeah. I'm sitting on the beach at uh, Singer Island. And I'm like watching and in the middle of it. I'm, I'm social distancing. Everyone's around me. And I'm screaming out <laughs> on the short putts that Shoffley misses and, uh, and, and at the end. I mean, it's just... I think three or four times I'm screaming. People are like looking at like, what are you doing? Why are you making these sounds? Because I was listening on Sirius Satellite Radio on some, which mm-hmm. I thought they did a great job. I love listening to golf on satellite radio in terms of the breaking down. I think it's even better than TV. There's less commercials. They yeah. don't go. And then I switched it over to watch the final like half hour on mm-hmm. TV. But boy, to have all the big names in there, to have it, four people tied for the lead. It was great. I mean, that was a great tournament. I'm glad that they had that type of tournament instead of somebody running away with the seven-stroke lead. I liked to see the course with no fans, too. I thought it was very nice to be able to see this course because you typically it's hard to really make out what's going on except for the action itself. They really highlighted what's a beautiful golf course. I mean, I want to say something blasphemous. I don't. I think with golf, it doesn't matter as much. No. I know this sounds. I, I people are going to criticize this, but it's the one sport that I think that you're. You, it's first of all, people are quiet when you're mm-hmm. hitting, so you don't hear the. You only hear it after the fact. You just hear mashed potatoes and and stuff like that, <laughs> and they don't. You don't hear the sounds like. When you're at the golf event, I've been to zillions of golf events, so it's different. Like you feel it when you're there because it's loud and people are shuffling around and you're seeing it. And it's just, it's, but when you see it on TV, they don't, they don't even show the sounds. I mean, when Tiger's there, it's loud all the time. But for some of these other golfers, it's like someone hits and then they go to someone else and everyone's mm-hmm. quiet when they're ready to hit. You don't even hear the fans or see it. I didn't make, I mean, I was talking, texting with Ken Kennerly and he's like, what does it look like? And I go, it doesn't look, it looks like on Thursday at most of these golf tournaments. Like, cause how many times yeah. we turn on a, a If you were golf, following Daniel Berger on a Thursday, there's that many fans. That's right. how many would be on. I watch these golfs on, on this thing and that's exactly what's happened. So I think of all the sports that really wasn't affected from fans. Now, yeah, if Tiger's out there, it's going to look different. But we just saw Tiger and Phil do that and there were no fans there. Yeah, so. It didn't bother me in the slightest, like you said. And I think other sports would be weird, especially, you know, baseball, the fans are constantly in the picture during a pitch. You don't see that unless there's just someone in the background. I'm fine without it. Um, huge show tonight, Ira. Brittany Erton's going to join us. She's from TVG, also NBC. She knows everything when it comes to horse racing. Had her on the show before and she's fantastic. Yeah, just breaking down the Belmont. I mean, it's shocked that Hey, the Belmont's coming up next yeah. week, and it's so it'll be great to have her come in and give her predictions for the Belmont. And then uh, right around seven forty, we're going to have a gentleman join us named Jay Horowitz. He's Mister Met in his own mind, not the technical Mister Met. I mean, he, he may have been in there before, but he's deeply ingrained in the Mets organization. I guarantee you that he probably put the outfit on once or twice. Oh, without the Met outfit, but he's been the PR director for forty years for the Mets. Has great stories, and uh, I'm excited to have him on and, and tell stories about the Mets. Anybody who's a Mets fan is going to love this interview. And of course, we've got the you know the Mets um, spring training facility. Just up the road, and plenty of New Yorkers here in Florida. So I know if you don't, if you're not a Mets fan, I'm sure you know somebody. Or you're a, who Mets, is. a Mets hater. <laughs> that, that goes both ways. Um, let, let's talk about it though. You mentioned baseball. I we were talking on this show a week ago, and I don't know if anything's changed for the better since then. It doesn't seem like it. Proposals back and forth, and I'm going to break this down really simple. Is that the owners want to pay? They don't care about how many games. It's 50 games, so it's going to be 50 games or third. If the players want to play 80 or 90, doesn't matter. The owners want to pay 35 percent of what you get in your salary. So if you got to pay a million dollars, you get 350,000. They're going to pay 35. The players want 54 percent. The difference is between like 1.45 billion and 2.4 billion. So it's almost a billion dollars difference. Yeah. That's really what it is, and it's not amount when you talk about proration and the games and this and that. So the Players are like, we're too far apart. Owner, you set the schedule. Now they're setting if the owner has to get the schedule of the 50 games, then they can fight in terms of how the bubble's going to look and back and forth. And this is going to go on. I mean, there's, it's quite, now the Manfred said we're having a season. And my statement is, I think there will be a season. The question is, who's going to play in it? And I think you're going to see the same thing with the NBA, is that there will have a season and you're going to see a lot of the big names not playing in it. And they'll have a season and they'll either have a 16-team playoff or 10-team playoff. But that's what it is. And it'll start, and it'll end, it'll start in, in July, I mean, I mean August, and then probably run till New, uh, October and have a, uh, you know, October baseball for the playoffs. That's it. Um, it it just, just seems like there's no urgency. And we talked about that last week. The owners don't seem to want to get the, this done and the players don't seem to want to play for anything the owners have to say. So 
I just feel like we're going nowhere. We're going baseball, in baseball economics is hard. They've had more labor stoppages than any other, all the other yeah. sports combined. And then when you added the fact now, because without the fans, we've mentioned this the first time this happened, it's a sport that is dependent on fans. When you take the fans out, the owners are saying, we're losing money. We could play 162 games. We lose money. It doesn't matter. We're losing money every time we play a game where we don't make as much on the TV, where they make their money is in the playoffs, and that's what they're trying to get to. They want to have a playoff and make money on TV. But their idea is even with that, we're going to lose money this year. So that's the point, and that's... And then you have a players union that's very, you know, very, you know, they're fighting with the owners. And this is, but this is going to go on till two years from now when the, or actually one year from now when their con- their collective bargaining agreement expires. So it's just, it's it's a mess. But it's, I, I think they're still going to play. But the question is, which players are going to say, look, I, but they haven't even talked about the bubbles and those yes. things like that. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of big names not play. Uh, let's switch to the NBA. And this was something, I mean, a, a week ago we thought, well, they're really laying some groundwork here. Then out of nowhere, you get this Kyrie Irving thing pop up, and I think you're a little bit more skeptical of this happening than you were last week. Well, this is this is a coup d'etat. I mean, we had a situation with the NBA where you had uh, Bob Iger, who runs Disney, who is the president of Disney, and he's friends with Chris Paul, and also LeBron James, who is friends with Chris Paul, and also friends with Bob Iger because they're doing the Space Jam movie. And then you have a Michelle Roberts, who runs the union, and they came up with the plan of having the 22 teams in Disney. They were going to have eight regular seasons in games and then go to the playoffs. We talked about last week how the teams, Memphis was had the last spot, but Phoenix, New Orleans, Sacramento, and the Spurs, between three and a half backs and six back are still going to be in there. And it seemed like that was what was going to happen. The players all voted. They had a, the player heads said, we're all going to have it. A week ago, they had a call. And on the call, Kyrie Irving asked because he said, I'm not going to play, but can I come watch the games? Will I stay in the bubble? And then he goes, if I'm there, can I use the sauna? And what kind of food's going to have? And those things. <laughs> and, and, then, and then we find out that Kyrie had a coup d'etat. And, I, and it was a total coup. And this is Kyrie Irving, who does not get along. Classic Kyrie. Does not get along. He's the one at, within Cleveland who demanded a trade out of Cleveland mm-hmm. because he didn't want to be there. Who's caused problems, tried to get the coach fired in, in Boston, try, and, and got the coach fired in New Jersey, has caused problems everywhere. But out of nowhere, Kyrie is now going to the players saying, look, do we really want to have this? Like, this wasn't put together. Like, you had Michelle Roberts of the Players Association, Chris Paul, LeBron, Adam Silver. They were the ones who put this all together. Players weren't involved. He goes, why did you have to go to the bubble? This bubble thing doesn't work. You don't have your families for two months. And then a couple with Black Lives Matter in terms of that, in terms of where we can make our statement. Now, LeBron comes back and says, look, if we're playing games, I have a better megaphone. We're going to be watching these games. I'm going to get interviewed after every single game. I can I can be a proponent for social justice on during the games. I don't have to not play because of that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of factors you see a lot of these players, but now I think it really comes down to Kyrie. Was We were surprised when he became the vice president of Players Association a few months ago, and then to come with this and try to, it's really his take, I, I view it as his takeover of the Players Association. He had a call on Friday with 100 people, and he said, I don't think anybody should play. And I think what's going to happen now, What where LeBron doesn't like this, first of all, he wants to have this. I think it's better for him. Of course. But also, if enough big name players don't play and, and and suddenly LeBron wins the title, who's going to give LeBron the title? Like if he's playing college or G League players <laughs> and LeBron wins his title and this is my fourth title, people are going to say, look, I mean, you're criticizing Jordan. How could you compare the yeah. title Jordan won? You were beating college kids or something like Knicks. that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make sense. So that's the, that's the point. And so now this was supposed to start on July 30th. They were going to begin that. That was the, that was, and then in the playoffs were going to begin August 17th. But now I think there is this push now. I think it was surprised. I think Silver now is pushing a bind because, as I said, they are going to play this. Just like I said, they're going to do in baseball. But how many big name stars are not going to play? And it really doesn't cost as much as the baseball because these players have been played, paid most of their money already. Yeah, you're listening to Iron Sports here on the True Oldies channel. Uh, we got to get to Brittany Erton here. She's fantastic. Let's go to Brittany. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9. We're talking to Brittany Erton. She's a reporter for TVG and NBC. And Brittany's going to get us ready for... I know this sounds weird for horse racing, but the Belmont, the first, <laughs> the first leg of the Triple Crown. So, Brittany, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, thank you for having me. And you're right. It is a unique year, to say the least, but I think it's going to be a memorable one just by the order in which we see things. Obviously, the Belmont is a different distance. You're going to have a different set of horses, and the traditionalists will not call it a Triple Crown, but I'll still say these three races – together as a whole are the triple crown so i'm looking forward to it is it going to be weird to have the belmont and then there is that gap there's a the the 
the Triple Crown usually is every two weeks and then three weeks before the Belmont, but you're going to have a gap of about two months before the Kentucky Derby and then another month before the Preakness. So that's going to add some, I mean, there might, horses might actually run some other races in between these races. Absolutely. And all of the races that lead up to the Kentucky Derby, certain stakes races that you know as standalone big races like the Travers and the Haskell, including the Belmont, have Kentucky Derby points attached to them, which is also really strange. So now the Triple Crown takes place over 15 weeks rather than, as you mentioned, the traditional five weeks. It, to me, almost makes it more difficult to keep a horse at their peak for that extended amount of time. Uh, it's difficult to do. We've already seen quite a few defections from of the top three-year-olds uh, sidelined for a bit, which is incredibly unfortunate. So it's going to be a, a challenging task for these trainers. But to be honest, if they, if someone is able to pull it off, um, the entire Triple Crown over that 15-week span, hats off to really the training because that's that's remarkable to keep a horse in peak form for that long. Do you see any discussion as there people talking? Because there's always been this talk about having spacing the races out a little bit more um, because they think the turnaround's too short. Um, is this something that do you think this is going to be a one-off year of this? Or do you think in the future there might be some move to, to move these around, the, the races around a little bit? I don't think the Kentucky Derby date uh, the first Saturday in May is going to change. But in terms of the other races, maybe spacing it out throughout the summer. Gosh, I don't know. It's tough to say. There was so much discussion about the Triple Crown, the traditional Triple Crown over the five-week span prior to American Pharaoh winning. But then you have American Pharaoh winning, and a few years later, Justify completes the Triple Crown successfully. So then you also hear people saying, well, it's too easy. <laughs> We've seen two, horse, two horses in the span of a few years able to complete it. So I'm not sure you're going to make everyone happy with the schedule of the Triple Crown. But who knows? I don't think we'll see anything like this year once again. I think we'll see the traditional format again next year. But in years to come, who knows? I applaud the horse racing industry for being able to adjust. I think that's one thing they're very good at is calling an audible, adjusting, and uh, making do with what we have right now. And then you mentioned that the Belmont is shorter this year, not the mile and a half, but actually the, the mile and an eighth. And, and that might affect some people. Some horses just, I think, are, are just trained to run the Belmont. Like, that's a Belmont horse. But now you're not going to have that mile and a half race. Yeah, you hear that a lot. You know, certain horses that, say, are, I don't want to call them plotters, but they just have that endurance to go a distance of ground, and they might get run off their feet if they're going a mile and an eighth. So this shakes things up a lot. Barkley Tag, who's the trainer of his the law, the absolute horse to be in the Belmont, said that he wouldn't have minded going a mile and a half with his the law right now. But I don't think a mile and an eighth will be any issue for him. I think it makes it a bit of an even playing field for some of the other horses that may not have been able to go a mile and a half. But it's interesting because it's a one turn mile and an eighth. So who does that benefit? It's going to be really competitive and very interesting like i said before this will be a year we will never forget well i was at the 2003 uh, belmont when funny side was going for the triple crown and it was uh, just you know every time when a horse is going for the triple crown exciting but funny side because of it's from belmont and and for the from this track uh, that that extra excitement but we're going to have that same sort of a feel with tis the law and we're down here in west palm beach and unfortunately we didn't have the florida derby packed with the stands watching tis the law win that usually if we do but it seems like as you said tis the law is the uh, favorite for this and and and, and the odds i guess 3 to 2 were the, the initial odds what a special moment it would be for those connections who weren't able to get the Belmont victory with Funny Side. They go in with a favorite, Tis the Law, the New York Bread. There's so many wonderful storylines surrounding that team and that horse. I think it could be pretty magical if we see the New York Bread win the Belmont Stakes. And like I said, he's a favorite. He has done really nothing wrong uh, since he hit the track. So hats off to Barkley Tag because he is really spacing out his races in a way that he feels is appropriate to get this horse to the Kentucky Derby. And it always said, the Belmont Stakes, that seems like a right spot for us um, en route to the Kentucky Derby. It's backwards a little bit, but um, it seems fitting that the first Triple Crown race is the Belmont and you see the New York Fred as a favorite. And then what a, a local connection down here is the Florida Panthers owner, uh, Vinny Viola. Last week we had uh, a representative for the Florida Panthers talk about hockey coming back, and Florida is going to be in the in the uh, in the in the tournament. But uh, he is owner of Doctor Post, who's nine to one. So that's sort of that connection. What have you seen Doctor Post run? What do you think about Doctor Post? 
Yeah, I was actually on air for TVG when Dr. Post won the unbridled stakes, and he just seems like this horse that is finally getting into his best rhythm and learning and might be an upsetter because you see him on this upward trajectory. I know Todd Fletcher is high on him. Um, Farmington Road is also in that race, and he's the type that might actually not benefit from the fact that this is a one-turn mile and an eighth. He may have liked the mile and a half because he is that deep closer. But you have to like what you saw from Dr. Post in his most recent effort and think that there's more there. You know, he might be the horse that's moving up and starting to peak at the right time. What other horses do you see? I mean, it's, again, the the big names like Charlatan and Nadal are out. Charlatan's injured for the rest of the year, might come back. Nadal, I think, is retired now from racing. So those two names that people might have heard about. But what are some of the other names and, and how in the field that you think are, are favorites for this? Well, an interesting story is Sola Volante. Sola Volante for Patrick B. and Cone, this horse ran, well, it will be when he runs in the Belmont, He'd run only 10 days prior to that, an allowance race at Gulfstream Park. So that was not a traditional prep for a triple crown race. But Patrick Bean Cone likes what he's seen out of that allowance event and feels that he will be prepped and ready to go into the Belmont Stakes. So that's one name to keep your eye on. I was a little bit disappointed to hear that Basin for Steve Asmussen wouldn't be running in that race because I feel like this is a horse that in his three-year-old year has been able to transfer the talent from his two-year-old season. Uh, but he's pointing towards the bluegrass. But Steve Asmussen also has Pneumatic in that race, who was an impressive winner, last out at Oaklawn Park. So those are just a couple of names to keep your eye on. And a local hope for trainer Linda Rice is Max Player. So she thinks that even though the horse has won going two turns, that this one-turn mile and an eighth might really play into his hand. So it's going to be, like I said, a competitive event, a unique event. You might even get bigger fields because of the spacing of these races this year, uh, when perhaps in a traditional Triple Crown year you may not have. Yeah, and, and we're going to, until we talk about a little bit more about some the other races coming up, but um, the Preakness, some good news. I mean, I, it was like two or three weeks ago, and it was like hidden where it just said out of, out of nowhere, where it said that uh, the state of Maryland is now going to uh, spend money to fix up Pimlico. I've been to Pimlico a number of times. It's probably the biggest dump I've ever seen of any, any sporting venue, but it, <laughs> it looks like it. there was a question whether it was going to go to Laurel Track or whatever, but it, now it looks like the Preakness is going to be the Pimlico for years to come. So that's great news for the Triple Crown, though. That was such fantastic news, especially just for the people of Baltimore, because I know it's a big deal out there. I've only been to Pimlico twice, and I've seen the renderings that they are uh, putting forth for the renovation of Pimlico, and it looks fantastic. I have to admit, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, so I wanted it to stay at Pimlico. I'm happy to see that, you know, the state is behind it, and we're going to see a brand new, beautiful facility, I'm sure, in a couple of years' time. We're talk to, talking to Brittany Erton, a reporter for TVG at NBC, um, and she's going to be covering the Belmont this coming weekend. But um, I guess when if, if people just who are watching ESPN, it seems like whenever there is a death at Santa Anita, that is like one of their top stories, and it keeps going. And I, I know it's tragic in terms of what's happening at Santa Anita, and I think, of course, ESPN is just blowing this up every single time. But I guess for the, my listeners, talk about what – what what the horse racing generals and also what Santa Anita is doing, because I just was at the track two times this past year. And it's one of the most amazing, beautiful places to go to. But what have they been doing to try to for the safety of the horses and to to minimize injuries? Oh, so much. Since the last year and a half, they've implemented quite a few safety protocols. They've brought in state of the art um, pet scanner um, to try and prevent these injuries before they happen. They have a team of veterinarians that will check out these horses prior to racing. They also have the traditional uh, state track veterinarian who's always on site. You have to apply to have a horse work out. Um, So all of these protocols have been put into place. They've restricted any sort of, we may have heard that Lasix is slowly being phased out. Um, They've restricted um, certain medications being used prior to workouts and prior to racing. I have to say that Santa Anita during a really challenging time has 
stepped up and put the money, time, and energy into making the track as safe as it could possibly be. To me, it is the gold standard in terms of safety protocols across the nation, and you're seeing those protocols being picked up by other tra- uh, racetracks as well. Something that has come out of that is the Third uh, Red Safety Coalition, and major racetracks and organizations across the country have come together to implement these protocols. And uh, they have a wonderful website, and I have to say that they have taken the really awful moments and heartbreaking moments that happened at Santa Anita about a year and a half and tried to turn it into positive reform. Um, and I think that we could say that it's working, but we have a long way to go, and they won't stop until they feel that they have put in place um, you know, the safest racetracks and protocols that they possibly can for the equine athlete as well as the jockey. And then we're seeing across America, I mean, so many of the famous tracks like Hollywood Park have, have gone away for stadiums, other types of stadiums and for casinos and for other things and malls. But it seems like they're trying and, and we're down here in, in West Palm Beach and so many friends of mine go to Gulfstream. And that's sort of like almost the gold standard of what a track can be with with unlimited amount of restaurants, the entertainment center, all those things that make it as a, a day out, not just to sit there as a traditional just watching horses. Do you see that across? I mean, you travel to all the tracks in all 50 states. I don't know how many states actually have the tracks, but you go to all across the country. Are you seeing how tracks are adapting now to, quote, the new model in terms of running uh, races? I think it's tough because you have, you know, their infrastructure in place and this will be, you know, outside of my realm of knowledge and what goes into who has the property land and what can be put on that land. But I know so many um, renovations have been made just for Santa Anita inside its facility as a whole to make it more attractive and enticing for people to come out. Um, I think it's all about getting people to the track to see these incredible athletes in person to root them down the stretch to make a wager i think that's what keeps you coming back and so um prior to the pandemic um there were plenty of new events that were happening at santa anita a comedy show a wine tasting in the chandelier room just different things that not only bring people out to the track but have them enjoy the racing, but also something as well. And I think that's the goal. When it comes to Bullstream Park, I think it's just in this beautiful area with the restaurants all around. I'm not sure if Santa Anita really has, and I refer to Santa Anita because it's my home track. I'm not sure if we have the capability of doing that with the mall just next door. So they have to get creative a little bit. Um, Lexington, Kentucky, if anybody's been to Keeneland, it is a stunning racetrack, and it's just down the street from downtown Lexington. So whether it be on top of the track like Gulfstream is or a little bit spread out and you have to get creative in bringing people in, they definitely are paying attention to that, and that is the goal, to get more fans out to the track in whatever way possible. And I think it's just to make it fun again. People need to realize that horse racing is a majestic sport, but it's also a lot of fun. Right, and I see a lot of things, and you can see with children getting kids involved. Uh, I think opening up, I mean, there was, a, I think, a move a few years ago where it seemed like they were, you know, not like letting the people into the paddock area, not seeing the horses dress, not seeing them walk around. And I'll tell you, you get a lot of kids, they just want to see the horses. They think it's great when they have, mm-hmm. when they're dressed and how the, you know, the, the jockey comes on and the colors and all those things. And that, that's what, that's what got me excited about horse racing when I was little. My dad used to take me to harness racing tracks and, and to see that. And I think that would be cool. I think these tracks have to do more as they, to get the kids involved in you know, the fun aspect of that, make it a day, you know, just sort of like make it minor league baseball, you know, just some, that's how, you know, sometimes you go to minor league baseball where it says how exciting it is more so than like going to a, a major league baseball game. Yeah, absolutely. And you hear so many stories of, Oh, my dad or my mom took me to the racetrack or my grandpa took me to the racetrack. And that's when I fell in love. It does start at a young age and it starts with falling in love with the horse because that's why we're in this game. That's why we're in this industry because we love the horse and the joy that they bring us and the heart that they give us while they're on the track, giving it their all. Um, I don't know a single person that wakes up at four in the morning, goes to bed at eight o'clock and does it the next day that isn't in this game. Um, for the horse. So you have to fall in love when you're young. I think that tracks have worked on getting people to the backside and doing little tours so they can meet the horses or giving them a better vantage point to see them, as you mentioned, when they're being saddled or out on the track. Just a better experience as a whole is something that I've seen in the past 
five years especially, a heavy focus on. Safety is always number one and then experience. And then during this pandemic, I mean, most of these tracks have been running and it's been something to see on TV. I, I said I'm going to go back to criticizing ESPN. I know you don't work for ESPN, but I just think that they didn't they didn't highlight enough. I mean, I think they could have shown more races. There were a lot of stakes races that they could have put on. I just don't think there was an attempt on ESPN. It seems like if, the, if ESPN is not covering the sport like they used to, they don't even if it's not something that's in their we were like what, like hockey. They don't have hockey on, so they don't even talk about hockey. But the point is, I think that's from disappointing from what from ESPN's perspective. But the fact is races have been running horses have been running you saw, saw charlatan and nadal during this pandemic so i think horse racing should get credit for coming up with protocols and keep going to give some entertainment to people during this time it's been a real pleasure being able to bring fans at home some sort of distraction from uh, everything that's going on in regards to the pandemic and i applaud the tracks that have been able to do so in a safe manner, which at this point in time is now all of them. Um, but there was a point where it was just Oakland Park and Gulfstream Park, and they kept everyone's hopes up, I think, to see the game continually going. I know how hard those at the Stronic Group who own Golden Gate and Santa Anita fought to put these protocols in place. They have jockeys living in trailers <laughs> that actors and actresses would live in when they're shooting a movie purely to keep everybody safe. Um, so to the extent that these um, track executives have gone to to get racing up and going again has been truly remarkable because for those that don't know, the economic engine that funds everything that transpires in the morning is the afternoon's worth of racing. So it was um, a trying time for many uh, at tracks that hadn't been able to race in the afternoon, wondering how are we going to keep our employees, how are we going to pay them, uh, the racing funds, the health department for the backstretch workers. So I, I'm with you. I applaud them for being able to get back up and running, not just to support all of the men and women that work in this industry, but also to give fans at home uh, something to get excited about, smile about, maybe look, maybe make a little money on too. Uh, we're talking to Brittany Urton of NBC and TVG. Brittany, what's, uh, I know you have a lot of Instagram followers out there, Twitter followers. What's the, your handle so we can, people can be following you? Um, on both of Instagram and Twitter, it is at Brittany Urton. B-R-I-T-T-N-A-Y, right? Oh, B-R-I-T-N-E-Y-E-U-R-T-O-N. Okay, that's good. So, <laughs> so Brittany, before you go, are you allowed to give a prediction or do you have to wait for Saturday for your show at, on TVG and NBC for you to give a prediction? Or, or could you give it some sort of prediction right now? Oh, gosh, it's tough because you don't even know who the field is really or the post positions. But to be honest, with the one-turn mile and an eighth post position, not as much as a factor to me. I will say, tis the law, is the horse to beat, but I do like Dr. Post. I think he's an up-and-comer. So I'll say that, but, you know, we'll put an asterisk on it because I really need to handicap when we know the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're a little, we're, we're a week away, but uh, thank you. Well, Brittany, I really appreciate you. You came on last year to Iron Sports. It was right after the Kentucky Derby mm -hmm. with all the conflicts. So I guess we're bringing you on now for oh, this, yes. for the Belmont. So I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful week. Awesome stuff there. Ira, you're listening to Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So let's talk about golf. We had our first real, real uh, golf tournament of the year back over the weekend. I was super excited for it. So I've been a fan of Daniel Berger for a long time. He's from Jupiter. He went to William T. Dwyer, which is literally two minutes from our radio station. Um, one of my favorite Honda Classic memories, and the probably 40 times I've been to the Honda Classic, was that playoff against Patty Harrington, what, f uh, four years ago. It was, you know, I felt so bad for the local kid who nobody knew who he was before that, coming out, playing his heart, uh, playing his heart out, losing to, uh, you know, a crafty old veteran. And I was hoping, man, I hope this kid keeps, you know, keeps it going and, and doesn't fade away. And he really hasn't. He's, he played pretty well, and uh, he got a winner in in uh, uh, playoff holes just yesterday uh, over a very good field. It was a really impressive win. Well, just a tremendous win and a tremendous, tremendous tournament. The fact that that final day, you know, when I'm on Sunday, 
there was how many times it's like a four-way tie for the lead, a five-way tie for the lead. And these are big-name players that were involved mm-hmm. in this, and it seemed like people were playing very, very well, making putts. Of course, we're talking about a couple of putts that were mixed by Shoffley and, uh, and Morikara's putts. But yeah. I think in general, the play was excellent. This is a really, I mean, this is one of those tournaments that the, uh, the Colonial that we don't see a lot of big names, so you don't watch it, but it's a beautiful course. Mm-hmm. And it was great to see that play. No, I, I love to see it on, on TV. That's what I was saying before. That the fans, it didn't really bother me. Um, let's talk about Daniel Berger a little bit because he's not one of the bigger names on the tour. But uh, do you know his dad was a professional tennis player? Yes. That's how he ended up in, in Jupiter. But So the athletic uh, bone doesn't fall far from the tree. But tell us a little bit about Daniel. Well, I just thought, you know, he has been hurt. He, this is, he was the, one of the hottest players in golf. Before the the, the mm-hmm. before the pandemic started, but before that, for the last two three years, he's been injured. He has his, his shoulder injured. He was he had these injuries, and uh, he had fallen. To, he's still one hundred seventh in the world. I mean, that just shows you where he came, and he's been playing well. So the point is, but this was this was type of. I remember the Honda Classic in two thousand fifteen. Harrington, they came down to the seventeen, and Harrington hit the ball a double bogey on seventeen mm-hmm. to blow the lead, and then he birdied eighteen. And Berger had a chance to to win it. They didn't have to go to the playoffs. Yeah. wasn't able to do that. Then they. Go with the first playoff hole, they replayed 18. They're tied after they do 18. Then they go back to 17, and Berger hits the ball in the water on 17. So really, that was that was just one of the greatest Hondas ever between those two. Uh, but this was this was the type of this was a, this was a win that I mean I did not like. We're going to jump to the end on this on this point. But Dottie Pepper, who was with the interview afterwards, saying you don't like to win that way when Colin Makara missed the missed the putt. Yeah. And I'm thinking he's made so many big shots this entire day. It's not like they're getting a rules violation. For I mean, the guy mm-hmm. missed a four-foot putt, which is still a tough putt. I mean, and Berger had a good chip in there on the playoff hole. The point was, I think that he totally earned a win. Like, he looked at Dottie and like, I, I, I earned this. Like, this is not like, <laughs> I'll win it any way I want. I mean, this is a tournament I want to win. So from that perspective, I think this is great for our area. Again, we have Kepka in this area. We have all these other golfers. And it's nice. Berger is this local, is the local person. Yeah. So born and raised and played up here. Yeah, most of them, most of the golfers moved to Jupiter. He's from, you know, I moved to Jupiter when he was just a teenager didn't actually play golf at William T. Dwyer, which is weird. He's a uh, professional golfer now. Didn't play in high school, but then played at FSU and kind of just went from there. Um, let's talk about some of the other players. I had texted you that I was really rooting for uh, Morikawa to, to make a move on Sunday, and he did, but just didn't have enough to, to go over the top. Well, I thought Morikawa, like what I was excited with how he played was that there was, it was, it was I think the whole Sunday was Berger, Shoffley, Bryson DeChambeau, who... If there was a point that someone was on steroids, I mean, Bryson Jason Blow three months ago was he probably put like twenty pounds of muscle mm-hmm. on, so easily twenty. Pounds. And um, as I said, I'm not a big fan of his because I've been at tournaments, I've seen him yell at at spectators like mm-hmm. when there's nobody around. He's he is totally yelling. But they were all in this mix between Berger, Shoffley, Deschamps, and Morikawa. And then in the background, you had Spieth who might jump in there and Gary Woodland. So you had you had like four or five other people. You're like, well, these you could have had at one point on Sunday, you could have maybe twelve people could have won the tournament. So I'm like wondering, is someone going to come up and do that? I mean, I felt that Shoffley, whenever Shoffley was in trouble, would have that extra birdie but and, and come back. And so Shoffley, it looked to me, was the most consistent golfer there uh, on Sunday. But then on uh, on 17, he, he had three. He was putting for a birdie on 17. Everybody was in at 14, so he's at 14 under. So he's putting for, he needed a birdie either on 17 or 18. And on 17, he's putting for a birdie. He misses that putt, and then he misses the comeback putt, and that dropped into 14, and then he just missed his chance on 18 to go to 15 under but that that really hurt him in terms of I thought Shoffley had the tournament I thought it was he had control and he just couldn't get that extra two or three stroke lead to, to, to win no absolutely he showed the flashes and didn't have you know just didn't have what it takes down the stretch and uh, I was excited and and you know I was excited and it, it, um I don't know what know the word for it it made me feel good again seeing Jordan Spieth in contention on on a Sunday he, he I feel like the, the game's better when he's one of the big names and we haven't really talked about him much in a while Ira so it's good to see maybe Jordan Spieth turn things around during the uh, pandemic well he's outside the top 50 he really hasn't done uh, nothing I mean what he hasn't won a tournament since July of 2017 yeah. that's just unbelievable I mean for a person who was in we thought he was the next tiger yeah next tiger and he's 
currently ranked 56th. And on Saturday, he had a solo, he was leading. And then on Sunday, he was one stroke back. But then in the stretch of four holes, he had three bogeys on the front nine. And then he came back. He's always someone who gets the bogeys and then comes back and has the three birdies. But it's still, he was, he just couldn't, he was two straight finished, two strokes back. But he was in the mix. He's playing well. He's from that area. I mean, I think it was Fowler and Justin Thomas stayed at his house. So oh, yeah. he has like this house. So he's from that. And it's like, it was good. Look, it's good to see Spieth back. But he, was, he misses the easy putts. But boy, he had sank a, like a 40-footer and another 30-footer. Mm-hmm. He's great at winning, making those long putts, but the short putts caused him trouble. But the other golfer that was shocking is Rory. I mean, Rory looked like he was in this tournament. And then again, the Sunday disaster yeah. where he just was, was, was terrible there at the end. He shot a 74 on Sunday, including four bogeys and a double bogey on the front nine, totally out of the mix. And how many times have we seen this about Rory in some of these tournaments where he's in the mix on Sunday and just totally falls apart? You know um, who else was disappointing was Phil. You know, especially with all the hype Phil's gotten lately, and you know we've seen him on TV. I thought he was going to come out and have a better showing than he did. Phil missed the the two big names that missed the cut were Phil and John Rom. I mean, again, we keep talking about this John Rom, John Rom. He when, when's he going to make his move? Number three in the world, yes. Or two, depending and on who you're just ask. waiting for it, and it just doesn't. It's like he has torments like this. I mean, this just shows you when. I tell you, this is hard. When Tiger is in, remember, Tiger in his peak was in contention every single week, and it's really hard when you look at world number one Rory, who wasn't in contention, you know, fell out of this. I mean, Tiger for years, how many years? What a decade, and being like every tournament, Tiger is like in first, second, or third, fourth place, like every yeah. single tournament. It's it's crazy when you look back on it. So, you want to talk about Sunday and how it all panned out? Yeah, I thought at the end, I what happened is is that when they went to the playoff hole, what on. Well, when Shoffley was unable to get to 15 under, and then you had Berger at 15, and then Colin Maracara, he had... Makarakara's big one was he had a 50-foot par on the 14th hole, and then he missed the putt. He had a chance to go to 16. If he went up to 16, I thought that would have had him, but he stayed at 15, and then uh, and then he stayed at 18. So it was really it was interesting because you wondered who was at 14 under because uh, Justin Rose was in at 14 under. And he looked good for three days, too. Uh, right, and DeChambeau finished at 14 under. Kokrak was 14 under. Shoffley was at, uh, and Kokrak was at 14 under. So you're thinking, these guys, it was 14. Like, you were going to have, like, a five-way playoff, and then when I think it was when McCar- when uh, Berger got the 15, and then Morikara got to 15, and they stayed at 15. But then for the first playoff hole was again they played they went back to 17, which is the bar four. Berger stayed in the fairway while Morikara was in the tree. But Morikara's second shot was just amazing from like a horrendous lie. Yeah. To three or four to four feet from it, Berger was off the green, chipped, and Berger. But that was surprising. They let Berger play out, so he, that put even more pressure on Morikara to make the putt. Even though Berger was close, I, mean, I thought that was weird how they decided they because Berger wasn't just having a tap in there. So he, <laughs> t- he does that, and Morikara. Then everybody was assumed they're going to the next playoff hole, and he misses the four foot putt, and that's when Dottie Pepper comes over and says, "Oh, you, it's a terrible way to win, or you, it's not the way you want to win." And I'm like, "Well, we just made all these yeah, great wins shots. A win. <laughs> it's a win. That's it. It wasn't like there's, there was there's no pictures p- on that page." <laughs> no, it was not like a disqualification or anything. But I mean, it was like one of those things on Sunday where you're just like wondering, could Shoffley hold on? Is it going to be someone else? Is Bryce DeChambeau going to come in and do something? Uh, I think that's what where the excitement of, of everything was. It, it um, No, totally. Like you said, if this had been a, a seven-stroke lead and an uninteresting Sunday, it wouldn't have been such a great return. But the fact that it went to a playoff and you know we got to see a lot of big names uh, up there at the top, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, and then you had Patrick Reed was, was two strokes back. Uh, Gary Woodland, uh, three strokes back. And then Sun Jae we saw from the Honda. I mean, he just could never get it going all week in terms of getting it. But it's like at one point, you're like, when's Sun Jae going to get it? But boy, Sun Jae has been playing great golf. I mean, every he's in every tournament. He's in the top 10. So he's played great. Would he play like 50 events last year? <laughs> he, plays, like- he plays every. Now, Brooks Kepka, when I mean, you look at his numbers, so Brooks Kepka shot a 68, 68, 69, and 69, six under par. It was like one of those tournaments where he had really had to shoot better than that. But he wasn't horrendous, but he wasn't in the mix. But of course, we're not looking for for books to win the Colonial. We're looking for books to win, get ready to win the majors. Um, so what do we have? Uh, speaking of wins, what do we have to look forward to these next couple of weeks? Well, the Heritage Hilton Head in South Carolina, there was a lot of rumors that Tiger was going to play in that. Someone said, I think Tiger's boat's up there, but then he announced that he's not going there. <laughs> and then the Travelers in Connecticut, and then there's two tournaments in Ohio. The, I call it the Pre-Memorial Tournament and the Memorial Tournament, which will be the first tournament with fans. It's funny that, you know, is, is there another athlete on the planet who we do that with besides Tiger? I mean, granted, it's this individual sport, so it's a little easier, but he's the only person that we could be rumoring, I think I saw his boat in this area, so maybe he's playing. <laughs> we don't do that for anyone else. Ira. No, no. <laughs> it's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We'll have Jay Horowitz, a.k.a. Mr. Met, joining us at just about uh, 7.40. So, Iram, my childhood, uh, my baseball was my number one sport. 
And I didn't necessarily fall off the wagon in 94 during the strike like a lot of people did. But I know that when, you know, baseball three or four years after that was at the peak that it had ever been in my life. And you were um, able to experience pretty much all of it. Yeah, that was it was back in, in, in 98. I was I was all the McGuire uh, Pittsburgh games when he was in the whole hunt for the home runs. And I went to Pittsburgh and saw him at home runs and I, and I saw him two, I saw him two at home runs. One was 477 feet. It was just tremendous. And then it was weird that they, that they showed that on TV. If you watched the ESPN 30 for 30 special last night is that it was weird at that time in September, they had the a Monday and Tuesday, a two game series in St. Louis where Chicago is coming in. And I'm like, it's Sunday. And I'm like wondering why I didn't, I wanted to watch, I think the, the Steelers had opened on that Sunday. So that's why then I drove, I, there's a reason why I didn't go on Sunday because they were home. But then I, I drove Sunday in the afternoon, I drove Sunday night and I got there and I remember showing up in St. Louis and I'm going to a hotel lobby and it was some downtown hotel. And I see this guy, he's just sitting in the lobby and there's all these people gathered around. It wasn't reporters, it was just fans. And I look and it's Sammy Sosa. And he's Sammy Sosa. It's just, could you imagine a player today and night just sitting in a lobby and he's telling stories and telling jokes and no one's really asking for autographs, no one's anything, he's just talking. I'm like, this is crazy. And that was, so the next day I went and I got a ticket right behind third base. McGuire was sitting at 59, I mean 60. So this was chance to, to tie Maris. And uh, in the first first inning he if Sosa was up in his first inning and then in the first inning he hit it and my whole thing with my camera was to get the right shot because it was back before digitals he couldn't do the burst mm-hmm. and I was like the perfect perfect picture and I loved it it was great and when he ran around the bases and he lifted his son up and then it was just it was great and McGuire played this well because he had his family there I mean his, his um, the Maris family who came yeah. and he really honored them. how many times do we see people break the records and they're sort of like don't I mean it actually brought a claim to the Maris family Roger had passed away who had 61 in 1961 if you want to see a great movie the 61 movie between mantle and and maris it's in their season yeah and they yeah. and they broke because people were booing him i mean here he is trying to break babe Ruth's record and they're like booing him because not only did they want to break babe Ruth's record they wanted mantle to get it and not him and this thing it was great because i think people like mcguire and they also like sosa so it was like a good thing a feel good but they really that year i mean to think every night they were almost hitting a home run it was like matching home run home run home run both the times i mean, Acquired all the pressures the, as the thirty for thirty showed. He was the one who coming in who had the fifty eight home runs the year before. Mm-hmm. The one who was thought it was going to break the record. And he had all the and more Sosa came out of nowhere and started hitting these home runs. So the pressure was more McGuire, but it was like at that during that whole year, it was just exciting the fact that they were tied. Like I was in Pittsburgh uh, in August thirty first. It was they were fifty five and fifty five, and it was just that you know McGuire went to Florida actually Joe Robbie Stadium when he hit uh, he hit two more home runs. So he had a sixty to fifty eight lead going back. Home for that series. It, it's one of those things I heard that when it happened, I can't remember a an event taking over America as much. I mean, a sporting event taking over America as much as it did. I was a kid, and they'd be breaking into regularly scheduled programming or putting at the bottom there at bats. You know, it was just it was what maybe maybe Michael Phelps. You know, during his runs is where America really rallied. But America was behind both of them, wanting to see them them do it. Yeah, and then that night, so that so Sun Monday was a day game, and I want to tell you something. I must have paid like a hundred bucks for this great seat. I couldn't believe. I mean, with all the events I've been to, the cheapest tickets were those because I think people didn't. It was like one of those things you were buying a ticket to, and you really it was like, but it was exciting because Sosa and Maguire were both that. So you can't like if you're watching like Bonds is trying to break a record, you just watch one player. You actually had Sosa up the next yeah. inning. You could never go to the restroom because you didn't want to miss anything. <laughs> but the point was is that then the next night I said I knew exactly where I wanted to sit. And at Bush Stadium, there's an upper deck and. Then then there's the wall, but then in the middle there was like these rows of like ten seats, and I wanted to sit in one of those. There might have been, I would say, four of those, and you saw those on TV, like four rows of ten, maybe ten by ten. So it might have been like I don't know, a hundred, hundred some seats that were perfect. And I'm outside the stadium, and the tickets weren't that expensive. There were a lot of tickets out there, and I got the perfect seat where I wanted to sit. And I go in there for batting practice, watching every hit batting practice, and I'm sitting next to, it and I see like is this ball, the guy who got the ball, that ball, the sixth, which which ball, the seventieth ball went for like three million dollars. Yeah. So the point was, I wasn't like, I just wanted it to be cool to catch the ball. And I had this chance to have it. And I'm looking next to me and there's like a wrestling team. I'm like, I'm never going to get it to this side. Like these high school wrestlers would have killed me 
fighting for the ball. And then there were like two nuns. I remember two nuns sitting to my left. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to fight a nun for a ball. <laughs> like, this is crazy. But when, when McGuire, he, in the, he grounded out in the first inning. And then he came back in the fourth. And this is to hit 62 to break the record. And when he hit the ball, I, I thought it was coming right towards me. I'm sitting there and the ball's flying. And I have my camera out. And it's, it's aiming right towards. And then it just dropped. And it went right over the wall. There was a section between the wall and the stands. And that's where that bullpen attendant picked up the ball. And they made a big deal how he was so selfless to get the ball back. He had to. He works for the team. Yeah. He wasn't. He, they would have been able to sue him to get the ball. He would never have been able to sell the ball. So I, and they made a big story how he goes, oh, Mr. McGuire, I have something for you. And he gave the ball, which was nice. But it was just great. And how Sosa came in for the outfield. They hugged. And I think that's what made I think it was so great is because Sosa and McGuire, they weren't friends. But they, they showed this this appreciation for each other. And predators. And I think also the fan bases, the St. Louis fan base, Chicago fan bases, two great baseball fan bases. I mean, they made a point when McGuire was traded the year before and was in a, like a two for 45 slump and he goes into bat. And usually if it was a Yankee stadium, they'd be booing him. Who, why would we trade this guy? And literally they gave her giving him standing ovations, try to encourage him. And we see this down here in West Palm Beach for the Cardinals. I mean, the fans are great. They're filling the, sta- the spring training games, every single one of them. And so I think it was just everything about that that made it great. What's interesting when you watch the, the, uh, the 30 for 30 was that Sosa had a chance. He tied. So even yep. though McGuire took the record, he had 62, then if there's a point where Sosa came and tied him, I think they were at 66. At the, he took the lead at 66 mm-hmm. in a game, and McGuire was down, but then McGuire then tied him at 66 and then had four more at the end. So he had finished with 70 to 66. But it was Sosa, even though they were, they were tied 12 times during the year, Sosa never, at the end of the night, ever had the lead in home runs. Cr- crazy how that worked out. Even crazier, you know, you mentioned that $3 million ball. I was reading an article today. That gentleman... Uh, the Cardinals offered him an autographed bat, uh, bat, glove, and jersey. And he said, that's fine, but I want to meet McGuire, too. And McGuire said, no, I'm not going to meet this guy. Should, the guy sells it for $3 million uh, after that. So probably a good investment on, on his part. And lucky that uh, McGuire didn't show up there. But Ira, we've got about um, maybe three or so minutes here before we have to get to uh, Jay Horowitz. Mr. Met, uh, UFC went, went down over the weekend. Well, there was, there was just a fight night, UFC, and the big uh, story was in the flyweight. Je- Jessica I is the, the top number one contender, and she was upset by Cynthia Calvillo, which was a, which a pretty upset. I mean, it was like, besides that, I don't think the other fights were that uh, compelling on that card. But you get excited. Two, 251, Fight Island, this is going to be next month. Uh, I'm pumped for this one. I mean, it's one of the greatest UFC cards of all time. The fact that it's in, also, the fact that it's on an island, Fight Island in the, in the uh, UAE, uh, that they built for it. But K- Kamora Usman, who is some people consider one of the top three or four pound for pound fighters, is against the, is the welterweight champion to go against Gilbert Burns, who just beat Woodley, we saw two weeks ago. I mean, this is going to be a great, great mm-hmm. fight. And then to also have that's the welterweight championship. Then you're going to have the featherweight championship also. You're going to Volta Niski versus Holloway, who's the number one contender. So you both have not just defending the titles, but defending the titles against the number one contenders. And then you have the Bantamweight title too going on the line. So really, you have, and UFC is unlike boxing where you have have a zillion different divisions. They don't have that many divisions in terms of the weight classes. So, and then you have a great straw weight uh, 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 women's match. Also, it's going to be one of the best UFC cards. UFC two fifty one. And what about uh, NASCAR? Stanley Hamlin won uh, the race at Homestead. He held off Chase Elliott for his third victory of the season, 40th in career. He had won. He, remember, Danny Hamlin's one who won Daytona, and then he won last month in Darlington. And there were a thousand fans there. They had just some fans, more, mostly first responders. They had invited, so it was sort of that you know, where baby steps into having fans. Mm-hmm. And of course, the big thing with NASCAR is that a few years ago they. They issued a rule that they were not going to have the Confederate flag involved because you used to go to some of the southern races. Now, the races that I have been to, I've never seen Confederate flags in, but I've been to Vegas and some of the northern races. But the southern races, they do. And they, they put a rule that they're not supporting it. But now there's finally the edict in place is that they do not want Confederate flags anywhere on the on the premises. Um, they're a private facilities, so they're allowed to do that. And that's what, that was the big story in terms of this week. And, and Bubba Wallace was a big uh, supporter of that. And, and, and I think most, and, you know, all, not most, but all of the drivers are... Yeah. Uh, got behind that uh, against the Confederate flag. Let's go to Mr. Met Jay Horowitz here on Iron Sports. Okay, so we're talking to Jay Horowitz on Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. Jay, thanks a lot for coming on our show. We're down here sure, in fine. West Palm Beach, and I know you spent a lot of time at Port St. Lucie. They've been there since 1988, so thanks a lot for coming on yes, the show. Sir. 
No, my pleasure. It's good to have a lot of good memories of Port St. Louis. <laughs> so you came out, Jay, with this book, Mr. Met, and it's your 40 years as the head of the PR of the New York Mets and all right. the stories you can tell. So for anyone who's a Met fan, and we have a lot of Met fans down here in West Palm Beach, but uh, this is a perfect book if you, if you want to relive some great memories. Yeah, I, just, I wanted, didn't want to write a tell-all book. I just want a really a feel-good book. And I, you know, did all my relationships with the players through the years, with Joe Torre, my first managers, with Gary Carter, Mookie Wilson, David Wright, you know, Bobby Valentine, Terry Collins. Just rehashing my personal, you know, back and forth with them. And there's a chapter about 9-11 and, you know, my growing up as a kid. So hopefully if you're a Mets fan, maybe a baseball fan, to get a kick out of it and bring back some good memories. You know, uh, my first day with the Mets was April 1st, 1980. So a lot of stuff went on all those years. Hopefully you know, people get a chuckle out of it. <laughs> That's great. And you started out as a as a sports writer. And the one thing that we're sort of missing, I mean, I'm, I like newspapers. I mean, I'm on the Internet. I have three different computers up right now looking at stuff. But I do like the whole aspect of being the, the sports writers and having a beat. And uh, and I know you work, you cover the Giants. The uh, Talk about, you know, the sadness a little bit when you see all these local newspapers that cover these teams going away, folding. And there's and there's like the lack of, quote, sports writing out there. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I work for a paper in New Jersey called the Herald News. And actually, I was a giant fan growing up, and I actually covered the Jets uh, the year after the Super Bowl year. I, you know, uh, Reeb Eubank, the coach, was a very nice to me. This is Walt Michaels. I got to know Johnny Sample a little bit and, you know, Joe Namath. And I just, you know, coming from a small paper, all my, all my years with the Mets, I try to, you know, treat every, every paper like it was the New York Times and the New York Post. I didn't try to be favorites. It's kind of sad. You know, I used to... I have, still have three papers delivered to my house here in New Jersey, and you know I read as many papers as I can. I'm not a Kindle guy or a, you know internet guy. I like to have the papers in my hand, get ink all over my hands, and that's the way I was brought up. <laughs> so uh, you were the, the sports information director at uh, NYU and Fairleigh Dickinson, and then right, and, right, the, and right. then in 1980 you get a chance to go to be the head of PR at the New York Mets, and that's because when Fred Wilpom and Nelson Doubleday built, bought the team, so you have really right with you know the start of the current those Mets t- teams, you've been the the PR guy. Uh, talk about in terms of you, and you mentioned in your book about what being a PR person back then is it's a little bit different than it as as it changed. You were saying how you. Were getting ki- uh, getting some of the players uh, speaking to the Boy Scouts and the Little League and getting them uh, things. You are really almost like their agent in some respects. Yeah, well, it's really changed a lot. The internet has made a big difference. When I first started, you know, the PR guy would write all the releases, and now it's on the internet, on the phones, and the agents would release stuff. And when I first started, you know, to get a player $100 to go on Ralph Conner's postgame show was a big deal. <laughs> uh, and, you know, to get 250 to speak to the the Quantic Little League was a big deal. Not anymore. So it's really, you know, changed through the years. And uh, right now, you know, everything is on the cell phone, the uh, Instagram, the TikTok, whatever the heck that is. And <laughs> it's just a totally different atmosphere than when I started, you know, a long time ago. And talk about being in the sta- the New York stage. I mean, you know, there was, when you see the, the, I always remember looking at the Yankees and the Mets and the reporters after the game were interviewing and they were just all around the locker and there were so many different microphones. And then you see players from like the Kansas City Royals and there might be like two beat writers. And it's just being the PR guy in New York for the Mets must have just been that extra added responsibility because you have so many media outlets and so much interest in these players. Yeah, New, New, York, is a, New York is a different place to play. I mean, you know, like a, an average home game, we might have 30, 35 press people there. And when we get into the playoffs, it could be up to 100. And it, 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 you have to take a special kind of guy to work in New York, you know. And my whole my thing going through the years was I try to be honest, never to tell a lie. And, and once you lose your credibility here, there's more papers here. But as long as you're honest with the writers, you know, the, a, a good PR guy's got three separate masters. You have the number one master is the ownership. Then you have the players and the media to deal with. The players think you're partial to the media. The media thinks you're partial to the players. And the ownership thinks you're partial to the other two people. So you really have to walk the line and you know, understand that the ownership is number one priority. But you have to have credibility. And you have to be honest. And that's what I try to do in my time here was to, you know, maybe not tell everything I knew, but not to lie about stuff that I did know. And to get through, you know, they keep your credibility intact. 
Well, you did tell one lie, and this chapter in the book was great because I remember growing up and reading this story, and I was reading the Sports Illustrated, and you talked about a player called Sid Finch and who threw the right. ball 150 miles an hour. And I, believing this and reading this story in Sports Illustrated, I'm thinking, who is this guy? Like, I can't wait to see him. And, of course, it's before the Internet. But you were really part, very responsible for this yeah. entire story and the whole, well, uh, everything it, about it. Yeah, you look like it's like... February 1985, Mark Mulvoy was the editor of Sports Illustrated at the time, and George Clifton calls our, our GM, Frank Cashman. Uh, they want to do a practical joke. The Mets would assign this six foot five string bean guy from some faraway country through a fastball 190 miles an hour. <laughs> and so I, he asked Frank, he said, Are you game? He said, Listen, that's how I existed for eight years at Freely Dickens, and we had guys like. Uh, you know, a one-armed fencer, a 43-year-old priest who played hockey, a, a 47-year-old freshman football player. So anything offbeat, I was I was all for. But if you remember the, in the opening paragraph of the article, it says this is this is an April Fool's joke, and people didn't really get that. So when the article came out, you know, Mel Stoudemire, a good friend of our late pitching coach, we organized something at the old Huggins Stangle Field where we had a, a tent. And we had, uh, we said Sid Finch was warming up in the tent, and we had Ron Reynolds, who was one of our catchers at the time, came out of the tent with a, with a hole burned through his <laughs> glove. And we said that that was Sid Finch's, you know, 80 mile an hour, 180 mile an hour fastball. We kept it going for about a day or two, and I got a call from one of the, uh, the New York, one of the uh, uh, editors of one of the New York papers. And it kind of berated me how can I give the story to Sports Illustrated? We cover you on a daily basis, but you know, with day two, everybody found out, and you know, you couldn't do that today with internet. No way you could pull off a joke like that. <laughs> the best thing about the joke was, you know, we didn't hurt anybody. We had some fun for a couple of days. <laughs> well, that's great. And then, so you start your job at the Mets, and then the '86 Mets team. I mean, it is iconic. There's some teams in baseball. The years go by, and you say, "What's a team?" But this team with the Keith Hernandez and Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and Gary Carter, and uh, you know, with a manager like Davey Johnson, it's like everything came together. You got the great players, and then they had the historic win over the, over the Red Sox, and it, it's like one of those teams for the ages with such colorful characters as players. We never knew, I never knew what was going to happen when it came to the ballpark. There's a lot of different personalities, but we blended together, won 116 games during the year. And you'll never forget sitting in Davey Johnson's office with two outs, two strikes on Gary Carter, bottom of the tenth, game six. We're losing by, you know, two runs. I'm trying to figure out how we're going to alibi. You know, we're supposed to win the World Series. We won 114 games in the regular season, and we get four short. But then, you know, we have Kev, uh, Gary gets a hit, Kevin Mitchell, Ray Knight, Lukey's at bat. Next day, we're down 3 nothing. We come back and win. We have a parade. Those are memories I'll, I'll never, ever forget. A great group, group of guys, great personalities. It was something you can, uh, you know, um, always treasure you know, after I'm, you know, let, let them in, leave them in. And then I guess the frustration for Met fans, and I have a lot of Met fans uh, that I know, a lot of my friends, but it's like that team just, they got the one title and nothing else. No other World Series. It was just, yeah. And it was just frustrating. It's like the team that they should, this is like, this felt like that the Yankees had the run when they had the Jeters and, and Paul O'Neill's and Scott Brooks. It's like, right. this seemed like the team that was going to get at least, at least two titles, maybe three or four. Yeah, probably, probably the, one of the worst defeats was the, in the, in the, in the, in the 1988, we won 100 games that year, and we're, we're, we're beating the Dodgers in the ninth inning, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and what's his name? It's, Dwight gives up a home run to Mike Sosha. You know, to tell you, know, he was cruising along, and we lost the, he lost the game in that series. We lost that series in seven games, and we had won that game. I think we won it in 88. But if you look at the streak from 84 to 90, we averaged probably 94, 95 wins a year. They had the wild card back then. We had been in the playoffs. So yeah, be right. We didn't win. We probably should have won more. But despite that, you really can't take away anything from what we did in 86. Yeah, that was great. We're talking to Mr. Matt J. Horowitz. Uh, published a book just came out called Mr. Matt. It's a great book, a great read. Anybody who's a baseball fan or Met fan should definitely. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and order it on in those sites. Um, 
But uh, so the, the, the one series in 2000, the Yankees-Mets, I mean, there's always this rival between the Yankees and Mets. And, and the Yankee fans are all like, you know, we're the only baseball team in town. The Mets are not even, they're like maybe a, a AAA team and that attitude. But it was, so you had to deal with that for years. And then they finally met in the World Series for the, for the Subway Series. Yeah, and I always thought the 2000 team is probably the most neglected or undervalued team in Mets history. We went over 90 games, really breezed through the playoffs. And we lost the Yankees four, four games to one in the series. We lost to four games by five runs. We lost the first game in extra innings, had a lead going into the ninth inning, didn't hold it. And, you know, I mean, that was a great Yankee team. They were right in the middle of their dynasty at that time. And we had them, we didn't do it, and we lost. But, I mean, you know, it's still, you know, we, we you know, it was a, in 99 to 2000, you know, first time in the playoffs, back-to-back years. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really good, we had, you know, Mike was Mike and, Robin Ventura, Todd Zeal, and you know Al Leiter and Bobby Jones. It was a, you know, it just fell a little bit short. But I, I just wish the 2000 team would have gotten a lot more credit than they they got in, in the history books. And then it has the the classic game too, when Mike Piazza and Roger Clemens, and Roger Clemens throws the bat at Mike Piazza, and, and, and that yeah. issue. I mean, one of the that most was, uh, that was probably one of the most madness I've ever been in the press <laughs> watching that. You know, I mean, Clemens could have killed Mike, and then. He says that after the game, you know, he thought it was a ball, which, you know, take that what it is, you know. And I, I forgot that he was that year or the year before, you know, he beamed Mike, hit him in the head in Yankee Stadium. And Mike had always had great success against Clemens, and I guess he never, he always, he, he didn't forget about the success he had. But that was probably one of the ugliest things I've seen in my times with the Mets. <laughs> And then you talk about a 9-11 in terms of uh, how the Mets and, and, and both the Mets and the Yankees in New York uh, really rallied around and, and with the city and, and what the Mets and Bobby Valentine did, uh, just, to, just the whole 9-11 thing. And, and, and then the, the game that Piazza hit the home run when the, on the first yeah. game back after the, the team had been away. And you spend a, a, a good chapter talking about that. Yeah, that was one of my proudest moments being that team, you know, from the ownership to Bobby to the playoffs to Johnny Franco, Todd Zeal, Ventura. Um, you know, um, Joe McHugh, Vance Wilson, you know, Al White, the guys got it. We did well. They we went out to ground zero 10, 12 times, really without any cameras. We visited the firehouses, the police stations, the hospitals. You know, Shea Stadium was a recovery area. We shipped stuff downtown. And, and then it was capped off by Mike's home run. You know, Mike came up in the inning. I'm not saying it, I didn't see he was going to hit a home run, but, you know, Mike was a kind of a player. He was in a kind of situation. He knew he was going to do something good and, you know, hits the home run off of Steve Carsey, who was born in Queens. And that was a night that brought the, uh, you know, brought the city back together a little bit. People started to smile. You know, after the game, all of our guys signed. Uh, autographs to the police and firemen's kids in the, in the uh, you know, in the dugout. It was, really was a night to remember. I think that night, for the first time in a long time after the attacks, it, you know, the people were allowed to smile a little bit. And then you're, I mean, it's like the Mets every, like, they come out every, like, decade. It's almost like they come up with these other great teams. So then out of nowhere, they really, the 2014 World Series was sort of a surprise in terms of what they, where they were to come up with the Daniel Murphys and Cespedes and everything. But again, they came up a little short against the Royals. Yeah, I mean, you know, Terry Collins did a great job in managing the team that year. We came on the last party year and, and uh, you know, it was great that David Wright was able to get back on the field. He had a big home run against the Royals in the World Series, and Murph was unconscious during the playoffs. And, again, it's unfortunate. We we lose the first game in extra innings. If we had to, you know, not to, you know, if, if it candy and whatever that saying goes, but we win the first game in the World Series is a different thing. But we we did, didn't, uh, we fell a little bit short. But there's a lot of good things. You know, we were keeping up for dead in, in August, and we came on like gangbusters and, you know, one and um, you know, we did a lot of good things. But, you know, got guys like Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe and David came back on the field, and it was a joint effort. And you know, what what Murph did in the playoffs was uh, probably never see again for a while. <laughs> And, you know, I liked in your book, I mean, it, you've spanned 40 years as a PR director. It's amazing anybody can even hold any job for 40 years, but now yes. you're more of a team historian. But it, so not only are you friends and, and close with all these players in the past, you talked about Gooden and Strawberry, but then you have Jacob deGrom writes the forward in your book. And, of course, deGrom is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yeah. And, and, and have, talk about your relationship with Jacob. Well, yeah, Jacob, they asked me to. They wanted, because I worked with the alumni now, they wanted me to, to, who I had a good relationship with a current player, 
the show, I reached all the decades. So Jacob and I had a kind of crazy relationship. You know, give an example. I, I would say to him, Jacob, we need you to do two articles. He said, okay, I'll do the articles for you. But you know, we had a basketball net up in the clubhouse. He said, if you make two or three baskets, I'll do the article for you. I never made two or three baskets. He always did the article. <laughs> then he would say another time, you know, uh, I'll do a step for you, but you've got to come on the field. And his fun goes to Steve and Matt and myself. So I did that. Never really hit the ball that well. But I, I try to you, you, ingrain yourself in the fabric of the clubhouse, let the guys know you're one of them, that you're wearing a stuff suit. And that's really was one of the secrets to whatever success I had, getting along with the players. You can take a joke, laugh at yourself. And that's how I try to you know exist for my time with the Mets. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, potentially with the baseball coming back and uh, and it could be a much shorter season. So you like your, you know, so the Mets, you somehow get, you know, DeGrom with the pitching staff they have. They might be able to to steal a World Series title this year because the season would be so short and you can, well, you can take advantage of that good well, pitching. Well, I never tell what happened. I think the Mets are in good shape to play. Hopefully we'll play and, you know, we have DeGrom and, you know, Mats and, um, you know, Marcus Stroman and, you know, and, you know, and, 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 and I think... Uh, you know, I think the stuff is there to get. A, you never can tell it's going to be a short season. You never can tell what can happen. You know, bullpen is solid. So, hopefully, all, hopefully all good things. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, uh, we've been talking to Jay Horowitz, Mr. Met. Um, his story about being the Mets, about uh, working as the PR director for the Mets for, for 40 years. Um, I guess one of the questions I had before we go is, is with, did, you have a, did you have an interest ever of, of leaving the Mets? I mean, you hear all these people in sports and they're bouncing around from one team to another team, but it is rare to stay at one team that long. I think I might have had one job interview or inquiry. I never really thought about leaving. I was pretty comfortable there. You know, I... I you know, I never thought it was like going to work. You know, I'm, I'm not a really office guy. Every day was different. I like to travel. I like the camaraderie of the locker room. I like the people there. You know, the ownership, Fred and Jeff Wilpon have been very good to me. And, and I, I never really thought much about leaving. So I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> no, well, I mean, clearly for the Mets. And, and, you know, that was what a great a great mix between you and, and the Mets and for all these years. And, and I think right. that's what, you know, I think that's what's great, your loyalty to the team. And, and you can see the players in terms of in the stories that you have in the book. So definitely thank you for coming on, Iron Sports. Yeah, my time. Appreciate you having me. Be safe and hopefully we'll get through this whole thing we're winning at right now. Let's get, let's get, let's get through it. Let's get baseball okay. back and uh, we can right. start worrying about the games. Okay, thanks again for having me. Thanks, Jay. Great stuff there from Jay Harwood. So, Ira, don't know if you know this, but yesterday was the 33-year anniversary of Keith Hernandez allegedly spitting at Newman and Kramer <laughs> at that Mets game. It was June 14th, 1987 is what Newman not claimed to We didn't ask him be. that. Yeah, we should have seen if, uh, you know, him being the historian, if he had a take on, uh, on if there was a second spitter or not uh, in that Seinfeld episode. So, Ira, what are we up to this week? Well, we got um, the Heritage next weekend, another good golf tournament to see. A lot. We, I don't know what the names are going to be there, but it seems like, a, again, we had 16 in the top 20 this week. I think we're going to have the same similar the following week. The Premier League, for if you love soccer, it's coming back this week. And there's a good fight on Thursday night, uh, Thursday night boxing. But next week's show, we're going to have uh, John Shea. And John Shea's an author who wrote this book with Willie Mays. And everybody knows Willie Mays is tremendous. But it's called 24. It's in a great, great, great book. And it goes through, it's not just one of these where Willie did this this year, this year. It goes through things like comparing Willie Mays to Mickey Mantle, comparing Willie Mays to Hank Aaron, comparing mm-hmm. Willie Mays and all these other factors. I cannot wait to, to interview John. Um, it's been great to have Willie on the show also, but, <laughs> but it's, gonna, it's a great book. I mean, it's, it's, it's an autobiography, but it's written with an author. We are out of time. I want to thank Brittany Erton from TVG and NBC for stopping by. Also, Mr. Matt J. Horowitz. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.